very big encouragement to stand up here and look out, see you here tonight. I got to say, I'm a little bit more nervous than I usually am uh, because this sermon means a lot to me. Uh, just my, my thoughts, my, my time learning and learning and learning this lesson again uh, means a lot to me and I cherish it. So I'm a little nervous to give it to you, but I give it to you as a gift from one brother in Christ to another brother or sister in Christ. And I have only one announcement tonight. There are no announcements. So, we'll begin. This is going to be a little unusual, but I'm going to tell you the same story exactly, and I'm going to tell it to you four times in a row. All right, so you ready for this? I've already lost half of you to Facebook. All right. It's not that, not that big of a story, but it will make you think about some important things. Dana was a precious, beautiful little girl. Beautiful as could be. She had the longest, most strawberry blonde hair that you could ever imagine. And her mother would comb it every night just before bed and she would tell her daughter how much she loved her hair. And Dana would go to sleep at night knowing that her mother loved her, that her mother loved her hair, that she was proud of her daughter and that life was good. Life was good. The school year was approaching and Dana was excited and she was a little bit afraid at the same time and she was thinking about her upcoming enrollment in kindergarten. Her mother told her that she would love all the kids, she would love the experience and it would be great and she, she would dream about at night at how, of how neat it would be. Her first day of kindergarten came and with it, a, a horrible experience. Some of the kids in her class had made fun of her and teased her for her hair color and the length of her hair. Kids are kind of mean sometimes, aren't they? They would point and laugh. They would whisper in each, other, in each other's ear. No one would talk to her. When Dana got home from school that day, she developed a plan in her mind. She grabbed some, some food coloring from the, from the kitchen cabinet. And she grabbed a, a pair of craft scissors that were laying in a drawer and she headed off to the bathroom And she began to cut her hair off one beautiful strand at a time with hopes of dyeing it after she had cut the uh, excess off. Dana's mother shouted down the hall, Dana, where are you at? In here, Dana said, not thinking of anything else to make up. She wasn't a very good liar. And Dana's mother walked in halfway through this process and she said, Dana, what on earth are you doing? And she said, I'm cutting my hair off. It's silly and I don't like it. And her mother picked her child up and put the scissors down and said, Who told you that your hair was silly? I've always liked your hair. Crushed little five-year-old Dana said, You may like it, but nobody else does. And I don't like it either. All right, I'm going to tell you this story a second time, okay? I want you to just listen for the details. It's going to be a little bit different, but it's the exact same story. Rebecca was a wonderful teenage girl. She was bright, she was joyful, and she was, she was funny. And life was good for Rebecca. In her sophomore year in high school, she started running with some friends, and she started to try to like what they liked. She hated what they hated. She uh, tried to think like they thought, and so forth and so forth, talk like them. 
One of the hardest things for Rebecca to ever do was to look like these girls looked. They looked so just perfect and great. And Rebecca didn't look that way. And so she would manipulate her parents to get the money, to get the clothes, and she would crash diet and she would binge eat when the pool season came in the summertime just to look like those girls. And one time, her parents had enough. She came in late past curfew, just like her other friends, and her parents said, hey, where have you been? She said, I was out with my friends. Sorry, I'll I'll do better next time. Uh, I promise. And they said, pretty soon, uh, or for some time, there's not going to be a next time, young lady. And she quickly replied, it's not that big a deal, guys. And the father said, who told you that it was not a big deal? You're grounded. Before slamming her door, she shouted, you know, that's fine with me. I don't even care what you think anyway. And the parents marveled between themselves how their daughter, who, who watched every move of, of theirs for so long in her childhood, suddenly didn't care what they thought. I'm going to tell you the story a third time, all right? Brent was a hard-working family man. Same story. He had a great wife and kids. He was in his early 30s, and he was on the climb, climbing the corporate ladder, and life was good for him. But a few things came up at work, and he had to manipulate, conceal, cover up, look the other way, and do a few things to take, uh, to take care of them so that his next pay grade and his next position could be guaranteed and his family would have enough in life. Sure, he had loved the days when he and his wife ate off paper plates and drank out of Dixie cups and, and uh, used you know, patio furniture in their dining room. But those days had come to an end, and he just couldn't live like that anymore. He had to get rid of his humbler days. So he began to work longer and communicate less with his wife. And one day in a fight over how much he worked and how little he saw his family, she said, Hey, where were you? Where are you when we need you? And he said, I'm at work. I'm working so this family can have enough. Don't you want our family to have enough? And she looked at him and she said, Who told you that we had to have enough to live this life? This married couple wondered at that moment how they could have grown so different over the past few years. All right, fourth and final time I'm going to tell this story. Same story. Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses, if you've got your Bibles. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. In verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, let it separate the waters from the waters. And at the end of verse 7, it says, and it was so. And in verse 10, he called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. In verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation and God saw that it was good. In verses 16 and 18, God made the two great lights to light the world and God saw that it was good. In verse 21, God created the sea creatures and God saw that it was good. In verse 24, God made the beast of the earth, and God saw that it was good. In, verse, uh, in chapter 2, in verse 18, on the same page spread in your Bible, probably God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, a, I will, I will make him a helper fit for him. In verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them. 
In chapter 2 and verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And in chapter 1 and verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is one pleasant to the sight and two good for food. Remember that. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. All right, we're telling the same story here. And there's two key elements so far. One, life is good. And two, God saw this, that life was good. Everything God created was good. Everything about creation was good. Man's role was good. Man's role in the garden as his job to take care of it was good. Man's relationship to God was good. The man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. And their relationship to each other was good. Man's relationship to creation was good. It was good because God saw it as good. And God was the measurer and the definer of goodness in creation. In other words, things were not good and valuable in themselves. They were good because God placed the value upon them himself. God perceived them as good. Remember that as we begin to get into this story a little bit further. I want to read to you Genesis chapter 3, the first three verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than all other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Isn't it ironic that as the serpent and the woman begin to talk, you know where the story's going to go. She's seeking knowledge and wisdom and, and distinctions between things. And right there in the first three verses, before Satan even makes his proposals, the lines are drawn in the sand. There's the distinction between good and evil. And she doesn't even know it because she has no clue what good and evil even are at the time. In verse 4, there's the pivotal point. I want to read verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's not that Satan says to her, Here's the good choice, and here's the evil choice. And if you want to, you can pick the evil choice. Satan never even talks about a good and evil in that kind of a sense. Satan never even uh, really gives her a choice. What Satan does here is he indirectly attacks the character of God himself. Notice in that Satan doesn't tell a single lie. He doesn't tell a single lie. Everything that is going on in this conversation is true. Everything that we are reading is just regurgitation from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God had said. And yet Satan is using it for something else. There's something deeper going on here. He's telling something about God. What he says in his words are not a lie, but what he says behind his words are the lie. He basically says, God is keeping secrets from you. He doesn't want you to be uh, 
in possession of this fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because once you have it, you'll be like him and God doesn't want you to be like him. And she may be thinking, why does God not want me to be like him? And that's what Satan wanted her to think. This next thought, because God is selfish. And if you can, if you can be convinced that God is selfish, then God cannot be trusted because God, if he is selfish, is not looking out for what I want. He's looking out for what he wants. And so I cannot trust him. In a sense, Satan says, I know God called obedience good and valuable, but he is lying to you. What's really good and valuable is that you get right now in this moment what you are entitled to, and you can't trust God to do that for you. Satan redefined good and valuable for Eve in this moment. And look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, the very first, very first phrase there. So when the woman saw... Seeing is a key word in these opening phrases. I don't know if you picked up on it or not in chapter 1, but it says God saw his creation, that it was good. Eve looked and she saw something in verse 6. And not in the sense of literal seeing, because Eve probably had 20-20 vision for all I know, and she was seeing things all the time. This time she saw something, she perceived it in a totally different way, a.k.a. she bought Satan's reheated definition of what is good and what is valuable. His external proposition that he introduced to her that she never knew before met something inside of her that was internal, internal temptation, internal desire within her. Deep down, Eve wanted to believe that God was selfish because she now wanted this fruit. She wanted to know. So she accepted this redefinition of value and she saw Satan's lie. You can see this unfold in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Think about it. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8 on your Bible spread there. God's creation was already pleasant to the eyes. Genesis 2 and verse 8 says that. It was already good for food. Genesis 2 and verse 8 already said that. Eve already knew that. She had walked by that tree probably hundreds of times and said, yeah, that tree's good to look at. Yeah, that tree's good good for fruit and food. But all of those other times she walked across it, she, she walked across it with another silent working assumption. The assumption that it was good to do what God said. That God could be trusted. That God cared for her best interest. That God was not selfish. And that God defined what was right. This time she looked at the tree with Satan's false belief in place that she bought within herself. And she saw something different. And it changed everything about her experience it's that third thing, that the tree was desired to make one wise. By this point, Eve didn't trust God. If Adam and Eve had still trusted God, they would have at least gone back to him and verified and said, Hey, is what Satan, is what the serpent says correct? Or they would have maybe said, Wait a minute, Satan, let me, re, let me reintroduce the words to you. God said we can't eat of it. Game over, go home, get lost. But they didn't trust God. Instead, They began to believe in themselves and trust in themselves, and they took and they ate. They touched the fruit, they ate the fruit, 
based on their new beliefs. We pick up in, in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the Lord, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They already knew that they were, well, they already were naked and they weren't ashamed. This time they knew they were naked. And what did they do? They covered themselves. And further than that, they put distance between them and God. Covering, cowering, hiding, questioning. All of these uh, things came with their new knowledge. All of these were signs that their communion with God was broken and had already been shattered. And so God finds them in the middle of this mess And he enters into it in verse 9. I'm going to read the rest of the passage here all the way to verse 13. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God walks in to find his creation that was good just a chapter ago, turned upside down. Trust had been replaced with fear. Notice this is the first time the word afraid has ever been mentioned in the Bible, but it would be mentioned hundreds of times after that. One, you have man and woman hiding from God. Community was out the window. They're no longer trusting. Instead, they're hiding. Two, you have a man blaming his wife. So you have a family turned against himself. And he is not over his household like God said it would be. And that was not good. Three, you have a woman blaming the serpent, a creature of nature that the man was commanded to rule over, not to be ruled over by. So it's even more upside down. And then four, you get God issuing curses in the following verses of 14 to the end of the chapter instead of blessings. Words like pain and cursed and thorns and thistles and sweat and enmity took the place of what God saw as good. How did something so good turn into something so wrong? It was all a matter of trust and where that trust was placed. The key to understanding what happens lies in God's question in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. Who told you that you were naked. In other words, who has redefined what I already called good? In other words, who else have you started believing in besides me? They had started believing in, believing in themselves. Satan just planted the seed. Adam and Eve's inward desire to want to believe the lie is what brought sin to its full execution. Think about the opening stories we said. Same stories, just different details. We are born into a world where humans thousands of years ago bought the lie that God cannot be trusted. We're born into that, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. Some of us learn very early on not to trust anybody but ourselves. And then we learn another truth, too. Some of us learn very quickly in our broken little world that we, that we must redefine what good and valuable is, or we have to let somebody else redefine what good and valuable is for us so that we can be happy. 
One, society defines good and valuable in terms of material and benefits and temporary things. Two, married couples today are told by society that good and valuable marriages exist only when the individuals in that relationship have their needs met and that it's okay if those needs are not met and things are not optimal. Again, a term that's defined by society, optimal, that they can just leave or call it quits. Three families are told to keep secrets in the church because strong families and valuable families and good families don't slow the work down by having problems come up. And four individuals are told to be good and valuable. And to do that, they must be independent and productive and intelligent and good looking and busy and in a state of constant satisfaction. And on top of that, all of society screams out with its pervertedness. When you achieve this goodness and this value, you will be good and valuable. And then when you look like us and we call you valuable, you will be free. The world doesn't come up to us and slap us in the face and go, refuse this God that you worship. Stop going to church. Give up on him and don't trust him. The world doesn't come to us and say those kinds of things. They don't have the time to come out and do that. They do something more shrewd instead. They say, keep your God. Keep your, keep your God and your religion and your church and your church family. Just let us redefine a couple of things for you. Let us tell you what is good and what is valuable. Let us tell you about what God and what we think he's like and whether or not he's selfish or loving. Let us, let us, let us. And when we get done... You will be happy and satisfied in a way that you never have been before. And deep down, we want to believe it. We want to accept it. And so we do. This sounds a little bit like the Genesis story. When we see whatever dream society holds in front of us as pleasant to the eyes, as good for sustaining us, and it is desired by us and the standards of the world to make us wise, then we take and we eat of it. And we give it to our family. And they take and they eat of it as well. They eat it up. We believe in it until we find ourselves more selfish and more unsatisfied and further away from God than we ever have been before. And then we experience shame and we keep believing that God is still against us because after all, we're unlovable by the standards that the world has called lovable. Then God looks to us and he exclaims to his broken creation, probably with longing for it, who told you that was good? Who told you you had to do this for me to love you or to be loved or valuable? I'm sharing these thoughts to a group of people I'm very thankful for. A group of people I, I belong to that, that I will worship God for all of eternity with one day. The body of Christ. No stronger bond exists between you and I and each other in this room tonight. And into that bond, I speak this message. One, God can be trusted. Psalm chapter 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. I didn't just make that up. I didn't get that defined to me by the world. That's in the word of God. Point two, God loves us. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Probably don't even have to read this, but I will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Three, we are good because 
We were made good by God through Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Again, in God's word, setting value and what is good. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Note, it's passive. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God did all of that, not us. For we are valuable because God says we are valuable. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would God die for something that had no value? And then there's Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do God and his angels rejoice And people that are not valuable at all? Let's do ourselves a favor. Let's leave here knowing who has the right and the ability to call what they have created from nothing good and valuable. And let's believe him because he and he alone is the Lord God Almighty. If you are here tonight and you are looking for fulfillment and you're looking for the love of God, and you are looking to be valuable, and you are looking for eternal life, you will get it here. You're already valuable. This is not the world promising you something through me that doesn't exist. This is the body of Christ led by the word of God, God who decides what is good and acceptable, not the world. It is what all of us need in our life. If you want the truth, come and get it. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and sing.